Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, former radio personality and current podcast host, Adam Carolla. Adam hosts the Adam Carolla Show podcast, which is the most downloaded podcast ever, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. But my strongest association is spending hours and hours laying on the floor of my teenage bedroom, listening to him dispense sex and love advice with Dr. Drew on Loveline. Adam co-hosted The Man Show on Comedy Central, and he currently has a line of beverages called Mangria. So I was expecting his last meal to be stereotypically manly. Something like a big slab of raw meat or, I don't know, a log cabin made of sausages. But lucky for us, his last meal is way more nuanced than that. This episode takes us to Eastern Europe by way of Hungary. Do you say Hungary or Hungary? I say Hungary. 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 Like mm-hmm. dungarees. Dung- oh, my grandma said dungarees. We're going to Hungary to explore a few dishes that are a bit tough to track down in American restaurants. You know, it's always sushi or Chinese or pizza or whatever, but go get some of that uh, Eastern European stuff with the spretzel and the sauce and the, you know, pounded cutlets. And the, what about sauerkraut, people? Yeah, what about sauerkraut? I chat with Carolyn Benfalvi, a food writer and food tour operator living in Budapest, Hungary, about some of the country's most classic dishes. And then I call up my friend Lauren Mara, who was my best, best, best friend in middle and high school, to talk about her family's interpretation of goulash. Now, this was really special for us because it was the first time we've spoken, as opposed to, you know, sending a happy birthday text in at least five years. Okay, shall we start? We shall. Okay. It shall be very conversational. <laughs> it shall be very natural. Okay. And we use shall noodles in goulash. <gasps> oh, my God. Okay, so Lauren just mentioned goulash, which is a little foreshadowing of what's to come. But right now, we're going to get right to the point with Adam Carolla. If you could have anything in the world, what would your last meal be? Uh, my grandfather's the only one who ever cooked when I was uh, younger, my mom and my dad didn't, didn't cook. My grandfather did. He was Hungarian. His name was Laszlo Gorog, and he made great Hungarian food. And anybody who's listening, I know every night, you know, you got that choice between Chinese or pizza or Mexican food or steakhouse. Do yourself a favor and go find some goulash and chicken paprikash and no kettle Go find some Hungarian or at least Polish or German food and get some of that stuff that sticks to your ribs every once in a while. I don't know why people never do that. It's always, you know, it's always sushi or Chinese or pizza or whatever. But go get some of that uh, Eastern European stuff with the spretzel and the sauce and the you know, pounded cutlets and what about sauerkraut people? (laughs) Sauerkraut. So I'm going to go to make my old deceased grandfather happy. I will uh, start off with a cucumber salad. That's uh, something the Hungarians do because they're like, we want salad, but we don't want it to be nutritious at all. It's got to be mostly water and paprika. So we'll go with a cucumber salad. Then we have a nice bowl of goulash to get started and we uh, finish it off with uh, chicken paprikash with the no kettle some people say no kettle dumplings where I ladle the 
paprikash sauce and the chicken over this bed of uh, this pretzel type of, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a little dumpling. It's almost like a little egg noodle minus the egg. Yeah, I was reading about your relationship with your, it's your technically your step-grandfather who was Jewish uh, and Hungarian. And I love that because my, my dad is from Romania and he spoke fluent Hungarian and that was the only language that he spoke with his parents. So I heard Hungarian in my house a lot. So I was excited to hear that because you don't hear about a lot of Hungarian people out there. No, they're few, but they're proud, and it's the craziest language in the world. If anyone ever wants to like YouTube Hungarians <laughs> talking, you will not recognize anything. Hát szerintem híres film egyébként a rajzfilm, tudod, a Dagobert kacsa, és azért ő már nagyon pénzes. És ezt játszanád te, te egyértelműen. You know, if you listen to, I don't know, Spanish or Italian or something, you'll pick up little bits and pieces of things that sound about like something you may have heard of before but man hungarian is crazy made up i think a few years ago when ann hache went nuts and started speaking to aliens that's kind <laughs> of what it sounds like <laughs> i always loved listening to my dad on the phone and he'd be speaking hungarian and then he would switch over to an american accent and be like starbucks microsoft mcdonald's like that always cracked me up when i was a kid <laughs> Um, and I read too. I loved. I loved the image uh, quote that I read. You said I was the only goy in the valley eating tongue when I was eleven years old. So was your Jewish grandfather taking you to delis as well? He wouldn't take us to delis because I, I think you know delis are pretty damn expensive for people who don't have money. I mean yeah. the sandwiches, the breakfasts. So he would go into the like lucky supermarket in North Hollywood. And be like, he'd go to the meat counter and be like, I want the cow's tongue. And they'd be like, yeah, we're going to throw that out or something. And they'd go, all right, you old Jew, give us $2. <laughs> and he'd get the whole tongue. Yeah. And then he'd just bake it in a big kettle filled with like onions and potatoes and everything. And it was, it was weird to me, but it was still meat and it was still somebody cooked it and I was still poor. So I was in, but it was weird eating tongue and eating tongue at home, not a tongue sandwich at Art's Deli. Did you learn any of these recipes from him or these things that you were able to carry on and make for yourself now? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I did learn a few of them and we do try a few of them at home. One of the things for me that kind of takes the sting off of being on the road and traveling and doing shows and being away from my family, you know, I go out fly to, you know, Cleveland, do a show in Cleveland, Friday night, drive to Detroit, you know, the next day do a show in Detroit that night and leave at, you know, seven in the morning. It's not very glamorous, but I'll hop on the internet and I'll find a kick-ass Polish place or Hungarian place because when you go to Minneapolis, when you go to Chicago, when you go to Cleveland, they still have these great places. And we'll do Hungarian or Polish or German, or we'll just see if it has goulash or whatever. And, and we put it on the calendar, like, okay, after the show in Cleveland Friday night, we're going to the place where they have the steins shaped as boots, and we're drinking beer and eating goulash. <laughs> nice. Adam Carolla wants a cucumber salad, Hungarian goulash, and chicken paprikash for his last meal. Now, I've heard the words goulash and chicken paprikash many times. But turns out I don't actually know what either of them are. 
In sixth grade at Pleasanton Middle School, unfortunately otherwise known as PMS, I met Lauren Mahoney, who became my very best friend. And you know, in sixth grade, seventh grade, all through high school, best friendship is taken to a whole new level. We did everything together. We stayed at each other's houses constantly. We were never apart. Did you guys have those little necklaces, the best oh, friend's heart necklace? You know what? We probably did. I was a bit of an unfaithful best friend because I had many of those with many people. Like, I kept them secret. Like, I was cheating on one with the other. Oh so, like, with some I was B. Fry and with some I was Saint End. Uh, but Lauren was my number one all through middle school and high school. And I loved eating at her house because her family ate so differently from my family. So, my dad grew up in Israel and most mornings for breakfast he ate toast topped with sardines and a roasted red pepper and eggplant spread. I have never in my life seen my dad chew gum or drink a soda. Lauren's dad bought cases of Pepsi and we got to drink as many cans as we wanted on camping and water skiing trips. Now let's talk about my mom. If you listen to the episode with my mom, which you should because she's a character, she shunned canned vegetables for my childhood. She refused to make me the Midwestern casseroles with cream of your ruining my childhood soup that I lusted after. Now, Lauren's mom made egg noodles mixed with turkey gravy from a packet, and I loved it. It was salty and processed and delicious. But my favorite thing to eat at Lauren's house was what her family called goulash. Okay, goulash to me and to my great-grandma, who I don't know if she invented it, but it's her recipe who passed on to my grandma, who passed on to our parents, who passed on to us. It's a very simple dish, kind of a poor man's meal, but it's Shell noodles, ground beef, uh, tomato soup, and that's about it. <laughs> you kind of just mix it all up together. So you, gr- you brown the ground beef, you put it in the cooked noodles, and then you add the tomato soup to it, and you eat it, and it's delicioso. I can't believe this is your great-grandma's recipe. I did not know that. Your great-grandma's recipe involves a can of Campbell's tomato soup. So it wasn't always necessarily Campbell's. Because I talked to my grandma recently, and I asked her these questions. But it's always like a tomato-based kind of a thing. So my grandma always used tomato soup by Campbell's. And my great-grandma used tomato, sometimes sauce, sometimes soup, depending on what was available. She had 12 kids, and it really was a good way to stretch the dime, I guess. So I would come to your house and eat this, and I loved it because I wasn't allowed to eat stuff like this at my house. And my mom was a snob, and she wouldn't make it for me. She did make goulash one time, and and it was not good, remember? No. My mom did? Yes, but she tried to change it up. Like, she used turkey meat, and she used the big, large shell noodles, and she used, like, a different kind of sauce because she wanted to make it healthier. (laughs) My mom's the worst. (laughs) It was pretty funny, actually, but it just wasn't the same. So do you make that now for your kids? I absolutely do, and they love it. How often do you make it? Mm, Probably once every couple weeks. Do you know what real Hungarian goulash is? I don't necessarily. I know that it's different. I think it has corn in it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. I think the whole idea of goulash, though, is like, you know, finding scraps and like meat that is leftovers or things that are leftovers and kind of combining it all together. Is that right? That is the American definition of goulash. But the original Hungarian version is quite defined. And no, there isn't any corn in it. When we come back, we're going to learn all about goulash, or goulash as it is pronounced in Hungary, from Budapest-based Hungarian food expert, Carolyn Benfalvi.
Adam Carolla wants Hungarian goulash for his last meal. But it is not the version Lauren's family has passed down for generations, which is shell pasta in a sauce of ground beef and condensed canned tomato soup. I got the inside scoop on the real goulash from Budapest-based food writer Carolyn Benfalvi, who organizes food and wine tours through her tour company, Taste Hungary. So in Hungary, goulash, which is called goulash here, it's really only one thing. I know in, in America and in elsewhere, goulash, is, it has the connotation of it just being, you know, whatever you have in the refrigerator thrown together and you make a casserole out of it. But here in Hungary, goulash is always a soup, not a stew, which surprises a lot of people. A traditional goulash is always made with beef. It can be made with lamb also, but then it has a different name. It's called birka goulash. And it's a very, very simple dish to make. I mean, people don't really mess with it. It's pretty much always made the same way. First, you saute onions and a little bacon fat. Uh, when those are translucent, you would add some beef cubes. You would brown those a little. Then you would add a bit of paprika, add some water. In fancy restaurants, they might add stock, but most people don't bother with adding stock. They just add water. Um, so then you would cook that, make it into a soup. Uh, before it's ready, you would add cubes of potatoes. You can add carrots if you want. It's not necessary. You can add a bit of caraway, salt and pepper, and really pretty much nothing else. It's usually served with a little pinched pasta called chipetka, which you cook directly in the soup. And you would never thicken it with flour. You never you never add wine, things like that. So it's very simple, doesn't require a lot of ingredients. And it's something that has been being made in Hungary basically since the ninth century. Oh, wow. So yeah, what is the history of this dish? Where did it come from? It goes back to the around the ninth century with the nomadic cowboys. It was a way for them to cook for themselves using preserved food. So they would preserve their beef. They would dry it out, you know, the same way that <laughs> nomads everywhere did. They would uh, prepare that with a little bit of onions, and then they would basically cook it on the road in these cauldrons, which are called bograch, which people still use today. So when they were ready to cook it, they would add their water. Paprika wasn't part of the recipe back then. That didn't arrive in Europe until centuries later. From what I've read, it was <laughs> very similar to the dish that they call goulash now. And is this something that people eat in restaurants or is this a very much homemade food? It's both. People definitely make it at home because it's so easy and it's just so, you know, it's everybody's favorite. But you also find it in most traditional restaurants. It's interesting to me that it starts with bacon fat and that you say that there's a lot of pork used in uh, the cuisine because I was under the impression that there was a lot of Jewish influence in Hungarian food. Yeah, you're right. There is a lot of Jewish influence in Hungarian cuisine. I mean, there are actually a lot of influences from, from many groups. Uh, there's a lot of influence from the centuries that the Ottomans ruled here. There's a lot of French influence. Uh, regarding the Jewish influence, if you if you go to Jewish restaurants in Hungary, they often do serve pork, <laughs> even at restaurants which advertise themselves as like Jewish Hungarian restaurants. So that's another interesting thing. So let's talk about chicken paprikash. Uh, what is this dish and how does that fit into Hungarian culture and cuisine? Chicken paprikash is also a really traditional and really well-loved dish here. It's a really simple dish to make and it uses a lot of paprika, which is the, <laughs> the Hungarian spice. So basically to make it, you start the same way that you would make a goulash. 
you saute the onions. You don't, you don't ever, in traditional Hungarian cooking, you don't ever really brown the onions. You mainly, you would saute them until they're translucent. Uh, so you do that with pork fat. You would add the chicken, brown it a little bit, then add some paprika, cook it very slightly because it burns easily, gets bitter. Um, and then you add some water and then you just continue cooking the chicken and then making a gravy, like a, a sauce out of the paprika adding a little bit more water whenever you need it. And then, then at the end, you can add like a little bit of tomato and a little bit of uh, Hungarian green pepper. And then at the, at the very end, you would add either, a, most usually people use sour cream, but you can also use heavy cream to make the sauce creamy. And yeah, that's it. It takes less than an hour to make. And it's, it's, it's great. <laughs> it can be like the center of a fancy meal or else it can be made like in a really simple way. It has a very strong and delicious flavor. So if you're listening to this and your mouth is watering and you want to try goulash or chicken paprikash, good luck to you. It can be a little tough to track down a Hungarian restaurant in the U.S. I found a website called Magyar Living, and it celebrates Hungarian heritage, and they managed to track down only 40 Hungarian restaurants in 17 states. Ohio had the most by far, and we have one Hungarian restaurant here in Washington called Budapest Bistro in a Seattle suburb. Since there aren't that many Hungarian restaurants outside of Hungary, um, save for a few Hungarian neighborhoods, the cuisine really isn't widely known. There's a lot of variety in Hungarian cuisine. It can be either uh, very rustic or very refined. It's really best known for using paprika as its main seasoning. Uh, but, re- but that really doesn't define Hungarian cuisine. I mean, there are plenty of dishes without paprika. So they use a lot of pickles here. Pickles were traditionally uh, a very common way to prepare vegetables so that they would last through the cold winter. They use sour cream in quite a lot of dishes. They use you know, pork is really like the main meat that they use here, although, you know, they have everything, but pork is pretty much um, the king of meats here. Um, and I would say like, you know, most traditional Hungarian dishes always start with some onions being sautéed and smoked lard with a bit of paprika being added. And that's really like the basis for for many traditional Hungarian dishes. Yeah, that sounds really good. And is it very stick to your ribs kind of hearty food? Definitely. I mean, the traditional, yeah, definitely for the traditional dishes. It, It really is. Do you know the history of paprika as far as like how and why did it come to Hungary and how did it become the defining spice? Well, there are a lot of different theories about how paprika arrived in Europe, but most people think, or it's widely thought, that they arrived in in about the 16th century with the Ottomans, who were ruling Hungary at that time. Um, But initially in Hungary, paprika was more of like a spice for the peasants. The nobility weren't really using it. They didn't really take to it. They, They just thought it was like an unrefined peasant thing. So I mean, it took a couple of centuries for, for paprika to become really widespread. I would say by the 18th century, it had be you know it was starting to be used by by the nobility. Also, um, they served chicken paprikash. Auguste Escoffier even used it on a, a menu in Paris, so it was becoming better known. And by the mid 18th century, it had become like essentially you know the the spice of Hungary. <laughs> Carolyn says Hungary also has excellent wines and a fantastic wine scene. And the wine the country is most well-known for is a sweet dessert wine called Tokai Asu, which is kind of interesting. Some may say ironic, especially Alanis Morissette, because Adam Carolla also sells a sweet wine concoction that he calls Mangria. That, my friends, is what we call a tease. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll chat with Adam Carolla about the origins of Mangria. 
Mangria. So is this like, what's with the portmanteau where you like, I like wine, but I can't drink wine because I'm a dude and I have to call it Mangria? Where did this come from? No, I mean, it was close, but I, uh, I, someone's saying hi to me on the street. Thank you. You know, you live in a good neighborhood, by the way. I've taken my dog for a walk in this neighborhood and two times women have pulled over and offered the dog water. Not me, the dog. Yeah. That's how women are wired. <laughs> <laughs> He's a 110-pound black lab, so I think he always looks thirsty. <laughs> Mangria was invented when I had a little bit of white wine, uh, sorry, red wine left in the bottle, and I poured it in a glass, and I was like, oh, there's no red wine. And at the time, I was living in a place where the liquor store was kind of far away. And I'm not an alcoholic, so I was like, well, I'm not going to go to the liquor store. I'm already in my bathrobe. So what shall I do? And I took this wine, and I dumped a little vodka into it. I was like, I wonder how that'll taste. I'll stiffen it up. And I dumped a little vodka into it, and it tasted like ass. (laughs) So I was like, oh, now I've ruined my wine with this vodka. But then I thought, well, let's see if I can salvage this. And so I poured a little bit of orange juice in it, and I realized it's back. I could taste it awesome. So I just said I invented mangria because I invented like high octane sangria at that point that tasted good. But instead of being, you know, watered down, like taking wine and putting fruit juice in it, I put vodka. So I like turbocharged my wine and took it up to like 21% alcohol versus like taking it down to 9% or something. So that's how mangria got invented sort of a joke yeah and did are you sticking with that original recipe and every bottle is just some wine some vodka some orange juice it's not vodka it's actually brandy that's in there but yeah that's it It, it's basically a pretty good wine from napa and a brandy and a little bit of orange juice and it tastes fantastic poured over rocks nice go to corolla drinks and uh, check it out yeah you and tom like us in your wine offerings yeah Tom Likas is another radio and podcast host who I had on the program. You should go back to the archives and listen to that episode. I know you're a huge car lover. I want to talk about eating in the car. First of all, do you allow eating in your car? And second of all, if so, what is the ideal food to eat while driving? Yeah, I don't have many rules as far as car and cleanliness and stuff like that. I mean, I I lease a Jag and, and it's fine. My cars are race cars mainly so you can't really eat in them because you're driving a race car (laughs) stuff with bill they don't have cup holders and they're all stick shifts and stuff but i would say the best is uh fries and the worst is probably a burger because a burger with one hand means you don't have full control over that burger you you want two hands at 10 and two on that burger and also, you can't set it down. Once it's up and out, it's on. It's a commitment. So, yeah. So uh, fries are good because what you do is you get your kids or somebody else to order the fries. And then you eat two for every one that they eat, but it doesn't count calorically because they ordered them. 
and you didn't finish them, they did. The only problem with fries in the car, though, is the ketchup, because I always want to dip, and I've almost gotten into accidents trying to tear open the little package with my teeth, and I'm like, where do I squirt this? Like, there's no dipping. You have to go naked fry. Yeah, and the worst packet ever is that same packet where they put soy sauce in it. Yes. And you try to bite it, and it becomes, like, weaponized, and you're wearing a white shirt, and it's all over the front of your shirt. Look, you know they have those little Tabasco containers that Hillary Clinton carries around on her keychain? Yeah, the tiny little bottle. That that soy sauce would just be a tiny little bottle. For an extra penny and a half, we could get a little bottle and their dignity back, right? I hope the Kikoman people hear your cries. I know they're big fans of the program. I mean, I don't know all the family members, but I know Eunice Kikoman. And really? I know Glenn Kikoman. No, I have no idea. Okay. Sometimes <laughs> you have crazy American names. <laughs> Eunice is a very Kikoman. common American name these days. <laughs> Eunice Kikoman. Oh, she's going to be older. She's an older woman. <laughs> I don't even think I know an old Eunice. Well, they, she just died. Then, oh. That used to be. That's a name. That's, a, that's one of your grandma's friends. Julia Child is the only person I've ever considered a hero solely because... Oh, hi, John. Sorry. I'm on the phone. All right. All right. Good to see you, John. Guys, <laughs> hi, John. More friendly. Everyone's coming home from work. <laughs> and everyone's saying hi. I got the stupid earbud in. And no one knows I'm talking on the phone. So sorry. That's okay. One of the reasons that I've loved Julia Child is because she started her career later in life. I think uh, when she was 40, she started to cook. And it wasn't until she was 50 till she had a TV show. And so I was thinking that about it. You as well. You know, you didn't get into radio until you were about 30. Is that correct? That's correct. I literally turned 30 when I sort of got into radio. So what is like the psychology behind that for you to, you know, have thought that you were going one direction in life and then completely switch and, you know, to become famous and have all these opportunities and also, you know, just to have a very strong natural talent to have a Guinness Book World Record for having the most people listening to your podcast. What do you think about that? Like having success a little bit later in life? I think it's good in general. You don't get whatever you get from being a child star. You live a very normal life. I I lived beyond a normal life. I lived a a very humbling life. My family was poor. Sort of did without, you know, car insurance and dental insurance and just kind of lived in a bunch of apartments with roommates. Maybe 32, I had multiple roommates. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment with two roommates. Like, it was three of us living in one bedroom, sleeping on futons with one of the roommates. Like, I understood what it was to work, what it was like to not have money and, you know, savings accounts and bouncing checks left and right and that kind of world. So it was good to get a good understanding of how people lived, how regular people lived, how poor people lived. Like my mom was a food stamp welfare person. So I got a real good idea of what can happen when you give people just enough to kind of get by on. Once I got used to working, really working, you know, scraping roofing off condemned buildings in downtown L.A. and stuff like that, once I got used to that, I never really looked at radio as work. I I looked at it as air conditioning and interviewing interesting people, and it just just didn't feel like work. I was so used to kind of toiling in the sun. What is something that you haven't done yet that you would really love to, either work-related or something in your personal life, like a dream that hasn't been achieved yet? Uh, I'd say a foursome sexually would be nice. (laughs) 
that might be in my rear view. <laughs> um, I, you know, professionally, I just did my first stand-up special, and that was a long time coming. And that's something that was a big milestone for me. It hasn't come out yet, but I've just been editing it. And that was kind of a big emotional thing for me because it, it just it made me feel like I was officially a stand-up comedian. It was kind of kind of nice. I would like to race at uh, Le Mans, the 24 hours of Le Mans, <laughs> I'd say is a bucket list thing for me. And that was Adam Carolla's last meal. Adam has five live podcast tapings coming up now through October in Southern California, Seattle, and Phoenix. Go to adamcarolla.com to get tickets. And that's also where you can go to buy his Mangria that now comes in flavors like white peach and pear and brose. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thanks to Carolyn Benfalvi. Carolyn has published a couple of books on Hungarian food and wine. She also organizes food and wine tours in Budapest. You can find all of that at carolynbenfalvi.com. It's B-A-N-F-A-L-V-I.com. And a very special thanks to my dear old friend, Lauren Mara, formerly Lauren Mahoney, that's how I think of her in my mind, who continues to wow me with her family's exquisite food traditions. I ate it a lot when I was a kid because that's one of the only things that my dad knew how to cook. So when we went to his house on the weekends, it was either goulash or hot dogs that he cooked inside chicken noodle soup because he didn't want to dirty more than one pan. (laughs) Wait, like he would put the whole hot dog in the soup or would he cut it up? No, he would put the whole hot dog in the soup, and then he'd take it out of the soup when it w- when the soup was done, and he'd put it inside a slice of white bread, and then your hot dog would taste like chicken soup and hot dog. <laughs> so do you have, like, a weird nostalgia for chicken noodle soup-flavored hot dogs? Kind of, yeah. I actually, I really like it. <laughs> Throw a little ketchup in there, and it can't be on a hot dog bun either. It has to be on a slice of Wonder White Bread. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's, oh my it's God. insane. I want to try that. Me too. I was like, that sounds kind of delicious. Your Last Meal is produced by Aaron Mason and me. Theme music is always by Prom Queen. Follow us on Instagram. We're at Your Last Meal Podcast. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Yeah, what about sauerkraut? Crap. <laughs> Sour crap. <laughs> Y'all don't need sauerkraut? Y'all want some sauerkraut? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> we got our blooper reel here, folks. <laughs>